We're continuing our Follow the King series on the Gospel of Mark this evening. I'm going to be reading just a couple verses, just Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. This is immediately after Jesus' baptism. So in the last text that we read, Jesus was baptized as he came up. The Holy Spirit descended on him with power, and God the Father declared, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. So our last text was a celebration text, and then we come to chapter 12 of Mark chapter 1. At once the Spirit sent him, and that's Jesus, sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. This is God's word for us tonight. I gave this sermon the title, The Man and the Monsters, because I think that summarizes a couple of gospel themes that show up in these verses. The first theme is Jesus acting as our representative, as the true human who comes and saves all of us from our sins. And another image in these verses is Jesus, the Son of God, battling evil. The Lord going out to the wilderness and fighting the monstrous forces of evil. The man and the monsters. So let's start with the man, with Jesus. And our first point for tonight is that Jesus stands where Adam fell. Jesus stands where Adam fell. As the true man, as the true human being, Jesus overcomes temptation in a way that the first human being, that Adam, didn't. At the beginning of these verses, it says the Holy Spirit sends Jesus out into the desert. And what it really says there is more like the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out. The word that's used there is the same word that's often used of casting out demons. It's a word that means sent out. This is a bit like someone coming home from his honeymoon and being deployed to a war zone right away. Jesus is sent out to stand for us, to fight on our behalf. After his commissioning, after his baptism, after this wonderful scene of celebration, Jesus is sent out to fight the battle that humanity and Adam had already lost. Back in the Garden of Eden, Satan came to Adam and Eve and he tempted them. He tried to draw them away from obedience to God to do what they wanted to do for themselves. And in that situation, Adam was the representative of all humanity, and he chose to disobey. He fell prey to Satan, and the people forever were driven out of the garden, out of God's presence. Adam was our representative. And when Satan came to do battle with Adam, Adam lost But now Jesus comes, and we're supposed to understand that Jesus is the new Adam. Adam was our old representative. Jesus is our new representative. Jesus comes, and he's truly human, just like us in everything except that he wasn't sinful. And so Jesus is able to act as the true representative of all humanity. And this man, this human, this true representative of all of us, he goes out to battle Satan. He goes out to be tempted by Satan just like Adam was. And there's a story, or there's a question underneath this story. It's not asked explicitly in the text, but it's there. And the question is, what will Jesus do? Will Jesus win or lose this battle? What will the new Adam do? Will he be like the old Adam, or will he do something different. And as you probably know, Jesus does something different. 
Jesus overcomes temptation. He doesn't do what Adam did. He stands firm where Adam fell. He obeys the instructions of his father instead of listening to the lies of the deceiver. So these verses, they take us, they take us back to the beginning. And in some sense, they create a new beginning. In these verses, Mark wants us to be seeing the Garden of Eden again and humanity and Adam all standing or, as it turned out, falling. And then in Jesus, we're supposed to see that in him, in this human being, humanity stands. This sets the trajectory for Jesus' ministry and it sets the trajectory for the lives of God's people. Jesus goes out in God's power to save us. In fact, Jesus acts as our representative to save us. Because of his obedience, he is able to save us. Now, when we talk about some of these things, it can be hard, can be hard for us to get. We're talking about corporate guilt here, and especially as individualistic North Americans that we are, it's really hard for us to grasp this idea that somehow what Adam did way back when, how can that make all of us guilty? How are we involved? And it can be hard, too, for us to grasp, if we can't grasp that, then how does it matter that what Christ did for us, how does that actually work for us? How can the death, how can the right choice, how can the wrong choice, how can any of those things that someone else did affect us? People in other cultures don't really have this particular hang-up, but I think for us here and now, it's a tough one. And as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I happened to be reading a book called The Pursuing God. And in that book, he talked about this exact issue, and he used the example of a corporation. So I want to talk talk this through with the analogy of a corporation, of a company. Now, if you're a banker or a financial person, you may have to correct me about some of these details later, but do it later, not now. But if we think back to 2008, we think back to the economic troubles, the housing crisis, all that bad stuff that happened, a lot of that can be traced back to corporations and to leaders of corporations making decisions that weren't good, making decisions that probably weren't ethical, making decisions that looked good in the short term but didn't work out well. Corporations made a lot of bad moves, and that affected all of us in different ways. And we can think of a particular corporation, I think um, Bank of America, if I remember right, was one of the big ones, but any of those big corporations. And you can see how the decisions of the person, the man at the top, how their decisions impacted everybody. The way they steered the corporation had a serious impact on everybody. The course they set didn't just impact them, but it impacted everybody who was part of the company. If you were involved in one of those corporations, the odds were pretty decent. You'd lose your job, you'd get huge pay cuts, you'd be in trouble. And if you're involved in the world economy at all, which all of us are, we were all affected by the decisions that those few people made. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but we can think of all of humanity, the whole species, all human beings as a giant corporation, as Humanity Inc., Humanity Incorporated. Adam was our first CEO, and he made a terrible decision. He made a choice that put all of humanity on a certain course that was totally wrong. And we all belong in this same corporate body And so we all are set on that same trajectory. 
And unlike a company or a corporation that you can walk away from, being human is who we are. This isn't a corporation we can walk away from. This isn't a group we can opt out of. We are stuck. We're all on the wrong course. And there isn't much hope. But then we get a new CEO. Jesus comes along and he takes on our corporate identity. He didn't need to do this. He didn't need to join in with humanity. But he chose to become human like us. He became part of the corporation, part of Humanity, Inc. And he took over the CEO role that Adam had messed up so badly. And Jesus writes the ship. Jesus goes right where Adam went wrong. Jesus takes the debt of the whole corporation, the whole mess, and he pays it off himself. Jesus takes on all the responsibility for our mistakes and for our sins. Jesus replaces Adam as our corporate head and he takes on the debt we owed and he pays it all. In the financial crisis of a few years ago, the government basically decided at some point that some of these banks, some of these corporations were too big to fail. If they went down, the whole economy would go down. And so as far as I can understand it, the government basically decided that all of us would foot the bill. There was this huge, huge bailout and all of us had to help pay for the mistakes that these people made. And I'm not saying that they were the only ones responsible. But someone had to eat the cost. And it turned out that all of us did. Spiritually. Spiritually, we all owed part of the cost. Spiritually, we're all part of Humanity, Inc., this corporation that's gone terribly wrong. And we're not guiltless in this. Our own actions have added to these problems and have accumulated more guilt. But Jesus steps in and he takes away all that spiritual debt for us. He takes away our guilt. Through the work of Jesus, God himself steps in and he eats the entire cost of our sin. Jesus, as the representative human being, changes the course of humanity incorporated. And because Jesus resets our corporate trajectory, because he gives us a new course, we have hope of deliverance. So that's the big story of history. It's the big story of our faith, that this man comes, he takes on our identity, and he pays off the debt that we owe. In this story, we see Jesus going out to begin that work of resetting our trajectory, of saving all of us. But there's another reality in this text, and that's the reality that God walks with us through the hard situations of our lives. And we see that in this text as God provides for Jesus in the wilderness. In this text, God sends Jesus out into the wilderness, into the place of the wild beasts, to battle against Satan, to fight the monsters that he finds out there. And God provides for him. Now, if you read through these verses in general, you'd probably just kind of glide by the mention of wild animals and angels there in verse 13. I think every time I've read it before, I just kind of went, well, what are the animals doing there? I don't get it, but I'll move on. Some people think with that talk about the wild animals, Mark is pointing back to the Garden of Eden again and saying, just like Adam was surrounded by the animals, Jesus was surrounded by the animals. See, it's a recreation moment. And I think that kind of makes sense, but I don't actually think that's the right way to think about these wild animals. I don't think it's the image 
that Mark is actually going for. The Gospel of Mark was written to people in Rome. And if not to people in Rome, certainly people who were part of the Roman culture, who belonged to the Roman Empire. And it was written around the time of the Emperor Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, you know besides that he was a raving lunatic, that he hated Christians. And he did all kinds of unmentionable things to believers. Terrible, awful tortures. And one of the things that the Roman authorities did under Nero was that they'd round up these wild animals, get them really, really hungry, cage them up in an arena, and then throw Christians into the arena with the wild animals. Mark was written to people who could expect to be thrown into the arena with wild animals. People who could expect their own government to get rid of them in terrible and torturous ways. Mark's original audience was people who could expect testing and trouble. These were dangerous and horrible times to follow Jesus. And so when those first people, that first audience of Mark, when they read this section and they read about Jesus going out into the wilderness where the wild animals were, I think the picture they would have had is the wild beasts in the arena. In this text, Jesus is going out to battle evil. He is being sent out to fight the monsters. The wilderness is the battleground. It's the arena. It's the place of danger and terror. And God sends Jesus there. God sends Jesus out to fight the monsters. And suddenly these just basic quick couple verses are pretty intense. Jesus is basically getting thrown to the wolves here. But if we step back and we see this passage in the bigger picture of what Mark wants to tell us about what Jesus is doing, we see that God isn't just throwing Jesus to the wolves. We see that God is acting intentionally and that God is walking through this hard time with Jesus. The verses before this, the scene of Jesus' baptism, they confirm Jesus' divinity, that he's come as God himself, as the true Son of God. And now this scene in the wilderness confirms that Jesus is acting as the true representative of humanity. And it also shows that God is present even in Jesus' temptation and trial. Jesus doesn't just wander off. We don't have this celebratory text at the baptism. And then God says, well, go off and do whatever you want. I'll get in touch when I need you. No, the Spirit sends Jesus out very intentionally. The Spirit sends Jesus out to this battle. And then it tells us that the angels of God, the messengers of God, attended Jesus even on the battlefield, even in the arena, even as he was facing down the monsters, the angels of God were attending him. God is in charge of this situation, as difficult and dangerous as it is. Now, the outcome is never really in doubt here. I said earlier there's this question underneath the text of what Jesus will do. But really, what Jesus is going to do is obey God. What Jesus is going to do is stand up to Satan and show him that God's kingdom is coming. 
Jesus is standing against the monsters in the wilderness, and he is saying, they will lose. And the God who sends Jesus out goes with him. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all act together, and God's angels help Jesus even in the wilderness. And for us, too, God provides in our trials. Because we see here Jesus standing against the forces of evil, because we see here that God provides for him even in that hard time, we can trust that God will provide for us in our trials, too. When we are in the wilderness, we are not alone. We all face our monsters. We all have horrible, difficult, monstrous times in our lives. This past Monday, Pastor Greg and I had a committal service for Joshua Piercema. And Joshua should have been one of the babies that we got to baptize in the next couple months. And instead, we had to bury him. And he's buried just a couple spots over from where our daughter Eliza is buried. These are hard things. And I know there are far too many of us here, far too many of us here who have lost children. And if we haven't had that situation, well, maybe we've had a family member who suffered memory loss and who, by the end, didn't even know who we were. Or maybe we watched a family member or even ourselves gone through horrible treatments and terrible times of poor health. There are so many monsters that we face in our lives. So many hard things that come at us and attack our faith and attack us. And I think especially as Christians, we're targets of evil in this world. All the things I just mentioned happen to believers and unbelievers. But I think there's another level of spiritual warfare, a deeper reality that we are part of the kingdom of God and so the kingdom of evil strikes out against us in all kinds of ways. But still, but still, God provides for us in our trials. And I don't want to make that sound easy or simple. The wilderness is a terrible place. I don't think it was any fun at all for Jesus to be out in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and facing off against the monsters. The spiritual battles are real. This is hard. Following Jesus sometimes takes everything we've got, and even then it seems like it's not enough. And honestly, what we've got on our own is not enough for us to follow God. But God provides for us. His Son and His Spirit give us the strength and the assurance we need. And so just like early Christians who, even when they were facing the wild beasts in the arena, ancient authors marveled at how the Christians went with peace. They trusted that Jesus would take them through absolutely anything. Throw anything at them. Put them in the battle with the monsters and the Christians would have peace because God provided for them. A little bit ago I talked about the loss of a child and I don't, I don't go into those things lightly in part because it's a hard thing for me to talk about but in part also because I know it's hard for many of us. Many of us, and I think a lot of parents are in this situation in different ways, we do anything to help our kids. When we see our kids having a hard time, we do anything to take those challenges away, to make it easier for them. 
And that's what God does for us. But the way God does that for us is that he sent his own son. God put his own son in harm's way on our behalf. These verses show us that we have a God who loves us so much that he sent his beloved son to face off against Satan himself for you and for me. No matter what trials we face, they are nothing like the trials that God himself went through for us. The Lord himself suffered on our behalf. And so we can trust that no matter what we go through, he provides for us. Now there are days that knowing that truth doesn't make our struggles any easier at all. There are days that don't make sense. There are trials that we just don't know what to do with. But what this truth does, what it does is it gives us the strength we need to endure. What this story does is tell us that God loves us so much that he suffered for us. And so we can be assured that God is at work even in our hard times. There are no monsters in our lives that are worse than what Jesus himself faced for us. Jesus, the true man, the true human being, overcame evil on our behalf. He took on our debt. He paid it off himself. And Jesus himself took on the monsters of evil and he defeated them. And in our own lives, God walks with us even through the hardest moments. No matter what we face, Jesus is with us. The Lord saves us. The Lord walks with us. Blessed be the name of the Lord.